Wonderful. So the last time I preached, I finished off uh, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. And that's all about marriage. So we looked at a whole lot of different messages on marriage. Chapter 8 starts a whole new topic, and uh, which is going to be uh, eating food dedicated to idols. And we're going to look at what that means for us. But uh, I'm not going to do that this morning, because before I carry on with 1 Corinthians... I really felt God impress upon me just in the last couple of weeks um, a message that uh, is around devotion to fellowship. And uh, sometimes when you read Scripture, uh, you place a certain emphasis on a certain part of Scripture, and then God speaks to you, and He shows you, actually, um, I want to show you something that you didn't emphasize, and He opens His heart to us, and we see, whoa, uh, God's really seeing things in a... I'm seeing things in a different way to what God sees things. And that scripture where God really highlighted this to me was in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. I'll just read it quickly. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to, the sharing, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. The thing that jumped out at me is that they devoted themselves to fellowship. And I've really felt God uh, very strongly impress this upon me and upon us in the church at this time that we're in. When Jesus wanted to change the world, he didn't start with a political movement. He didn't try and gather a big army for himself. He didn't start a media campaign. He started with a small group. He... He gathered a group of 12 men. He said, come and follow me. And for three short years, they did life together. He imparted everything that he was into their lives. And then he left them. And those guys turned the world upside down. And we are here as a result of their ministry being passed on, passed on, passed on. People being being discipled through the ages And uh, we're here today because of that. And it all started with a small group. Amazing, eh? I mean, think about it. Jesus is the world's greatest leader that the world has ever seen. He's the most powerful, the most wise, the most loving and caring leader. And uh, he could have have filled the biggest stadiums on earth. He could have come to earth. Instead of coming 2,000 years ago, he could have come now. And he could have been all over the internet. Every single Facebook feed would have him teaching and preaching. He, he could have uh, written books, tons of books. And he didn't write anything. In fact, the only thing he wrote was something in the sand by the woman caught in adultery that probably that message blew away that afternoon. And that's all he ever wrote. And uh, yet he was the greatest leader And I think it's significant that Jesus uh, chose, in my opinion, to be a captain of 10 and not a captain of 5,000. Because if he'd come and said, this is what leadership looks like, you've got to lead 5,000 people, well, none of us could do that. Very few of us could put it that way. There's some really talented and gifted leaders that are able to lead large groups like that. But all of us can lead 10. All of us can be in a small group, and minister in a small group context. And this is what Jesus did. 
And he did it in three years. You just think about, wow, three short years, and that was it. We sometimes think, man, we need 30, 40 years of ministry to get anywhere. He only needed three years and just a small group. You see, fellowship is such an underrated term. We're impressed by powerful preaching and big meetings. We're impressed by awesome music teams. We are impressed by large buildings. We're impressed by signs and wonders. But what impresses God? What really impresses God? Do these things impress God? I think that unity and fellowship really impresses God. You know, in Genesis chapter 11, the people on earth were so united, they spoke one language, they had one vision, one purpose, and their purpose wasn't the will of God. They were trying to build this tower up to heaven. And God said, I don't want you to do that. I want you to spread all over the earth. They gathered together and tried to make a name for themselves. But it says in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 5, But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Why? Because he saw such a demonstration of unity. He said, I've got to go and have a look for myself at what's going on here. There are very few times in the Bible where God leaves his heavenly throne and comes down to have a personal look and see. And one of the things that brought him down was such a display of unity back there, he thought, I've got to come and have a look with my own eyes up close. I was really struck with this revelation the other day as I read the very last prayer of Jesus on earth. And he, he prays for Christians, future Christians who are going to follow him. He prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all those who will believe because of their message. So in John 17, verse 20 to 23, let's have a look at that. John 17, verse 20 to 23. Jesus says this. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but for also for all who will ever believe in me, through their message. That's us. That's you and I today. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one, as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity, or in other versions it says complete oneness, that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Just notice over and over again, I pray that they'd be one, just as you and I are one. I pray that they'd be made completely one. I pray that they would know perfect unity. Now, if this is your last prayer on earth, you've got to think, well, this is extremely important to Jesus. He could have prayed about anything. He could have said, I pray that they'd know my word. I pray that they'd walk in obedience. I pray that they'd walk in the full power of the Holy Spirit. No, he doesn't pray any of that. He prays, Lord, I pray that they would be one. 
I want to read to you just something that I stumbled across uh, a while ago. It was the writings of Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, it's reported that he's preached the gospel to more people than anyone in the history of the church since Jesus. In one meeting, it was televised, uh, one gospel meeting that he ran, to two and a half billion people. So he's got the word out there. But this article was about his biggest regrets, which is quite interesting. He wrote this at 90 years old. And have a listen to this. He says, although I have much to be grateful for. So I'm, I'm skipping out a little bit of it. But he does say, look, he, he would never change the fact that he served God with passion. Uh, but he says, although I have much to be grateful for, as I look back over my life, I also have many regrets. I've failed many times. And I would do many things differently. For one thing, I would speak less and study more. I would spend more time with my family. I would also spend more time in spiritual nurture, seeking to grow closer to God so I could become more like Christ. I would spend more time in prayer, not just for myself, but for others. I would spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on its truth not only for sermon preparation, but to apply its message to my life. It's far too easy for someone in my position to read the Bible only with an eye on a future sermon, overlooking the message God has for me through its pages. And this is the thing that really jumped out at me. And he said, and I would give more attention to fellowship with other Christians. See, this is a guy that's traveled the world, preached to millions, billions but hasn't had a lot of time in close fellowship with other Christians. He says, I'd give more attention to fellowship with other Christians who could teach me and encourage me and even rebuke me when necessary. I think that's amazing. And this is what Jesus modeled in his life. He modeled this. This is what he prayed for. He spent three years of his life living with a small group, doing life together, sharing faith, ministering together. And this is the pattern we see in the early church. I've been thinking over this, uh, the book of Acts. I heard it once preached that the, the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. But I don't agree with that anymore. I believe it is prescriptive. Because I believe God's put it in here so that we can stay on track. God never gives truth in, uh, in an abstract, ungrounded form. He's very practical. He says, I want you to build me a tabernacle. And then he tells them exactly how to build it. He says, I, I want you to walk in this way. And then he brings Jesus and he shows us how to walk. You know, he, he demonstrates what he wants us to do. He never just says, I want you to love your neighbor, but however that looks, well, it's up to you. That's not how biblical truth works. And so in the book of Acts, what we see here is a blueprint for the church of today. It's relevant to today. Otherwise, church would be basically up to everybody's individual interpretation of how we see Scripture. Or how do we interpret unity? We interpret it by... Uh, texting each other, because that's the day and age we live in. That's our unity. Well, no. 
The book of Acts shows us it's got to be face-to-face. It's got to be living in each other's houses. It's got to be interacting and sharing physical things with each other. And so Acts, if you have your Bible, just Acts chapter 2. And let's, let's read a little more of that scripture verse, from verse 40. Acts chapter 2, verse 40 to 42. It says, Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day. About 3,000 in all were added to the church, not were saved and said, well, good luck to you, go find somewhere. They were added into a church. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayers, and to breaking bread. And then in verse 44, it says this, And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Wow. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So they met together in the temple courts. They met together all at one place, and they met together in each other's homes. That's the biblical pattern. There was a big one-time harvest, and then God added daily to the church. But notice that they devoted themselves. No one told them they had to do this. They devoted themselves. It was their choice. No one forced them. They had a revelation of the plan that God had for the church, and they devoted themselves to seeing that happen. The apostles' doctrine, prayer, breaking of bread, and fellowship. And I want to just narrow it down to three groups, because Fellowship and the breaking of bread happened together. They, they broke bread in each other's homes. They had communion with God and they had communion with each other. They, they had common union with each other. That's what it means. So breaking bread and eating and being in their homes, it was all one thing. It wasn't like they had a special breaking of bread meeting and then they had a special fellowship meeting and then they had a special another meeting. It just all happened together. They were just in each other's houses. And they were devoted to this, so they clung to it, and they were utterly convinced this is God's plan for them. You see, God saves us into community. There's no such thing as a lone ranger in the kingdom of God. When Jesus taught people to pray, he said, pray like this, our Father, not my Father, our Father. Why? Because there's an expectation that Jesus has that we're going to pray together. Our Father. 
Give us today our daily bread. Two is better than one. When someone gets saved, they get saved into the family of God. And now I'm going to say something that is going to offend you, some of you. You ready? I'm a child of God before I'm a Kahards. I only have a few more decades, maybe, of being a Kahards. When I get into eternity, I'm no longer a Kahards. Joel is no longer a Sahayim. We're a child of God. Amen? It's not going to be, hey, I've got my little family in heaven. We hang out together in our little corner of heaven. All the Kahards in the one corner. It's not going to happen. The Bible says our citizenship is in heaven. Your earthly citizenship, your family name ends when you die. And you pass over into eternity. You only go with the heavenly passport. You leave your Aussie passport here. You leave your surname here. And you get in with a heavenly one. That means your real family is the family of God. The people that you see seated around here are your real family. And one day when Jesus comes back, He's coming back for His people, not your family, your earthly family. And for some of us, we have family members who are unsaved, who we will be eternally separated from. God will leave them behind. And He say, come and be a part of my family. And come and live eternity, eternally with your Christian family. But yet sometimes we place such importance on our earthly family to the detriment of our eternal family. We put them before our citizenship in heaven. We devote ourselves to fellowship with our earthly family and don't devote ourselves to a heavenly family. <laughs> I told you I was going to offend you. <laughs> If, you, if you're not offended, if you haven't been offended yet by reading the Word of God, you haven't read it all, just keep reading. You will get offended. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> That's God's intention for the church. Unity among His people. Remember that doing God's will is the very best thing you can do for your life or your family. You put God first, your family will prosper. You put Him second, your family will suffer. So you can think you're doing your earthly family a favor, but you're actually not by putting them first. And I'm not saying don't love your earthly family, but I'm saying, my goodness, love the family of God first and then love your family, not the other way around. Otherwise, you're being unbiblical. <laughs> We need to reach them. We, need, we, we want them to be saved. God wants them to be saved way more than us, infinitely more than us. But He's not coming back for the unsaved. He's not a thief. He's only going to take those who are His. So let's look at this picture of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. That's the truth of the Bible as revealed by the Holy Spirit. Back then, there was a, they didn't have the Bible. They only had a few 
letters. They had the Old Testament. They had maybe the guys in Ephesus had the letter to Ephesians. That's all they had, and the Old Testament. And so they, they had to... They had many people coming and saying, oh, this is scripture, this is scripture, that's scripture, whatever. But they had to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching because they brought the revelation of the gospel in its truthful form. And all the charlatans and all the guys that were preaching all the nonsense, they said, you can't accept what they're saying because there was a lot of that going on back then. But now we have the finalized word of God in book form. (laughs) that we can devote ourselves to. I don't want to major too much on this, but just ask yourself this question. How devoted am I to God's Word? Because we have to understand that today's culture, the culture of today, is transforming us and forming us into a people that cannot walk in the will of God. We read tweets, not books. We find it hard to concentrate on the things of God for anything longer than two minutes. Yet we can watch a three-hour action movie and give it our full attention. We start reading the Bible and we fall asleep. Why? Because the culture has transformed us. And we're wondering, wonder what happened. We're trying to be relevant. Oh, you know, if only the pastor would put, put up something on Twitter, then I could grow in God. Well, no. <laughs> Read the Bible. Read it. <laughs> it's been relevant for thousands of years. It's still relevant today. The truth in here is eternal and it transcends every culture. It's relevant no matter what culture you're from, what nationality you're from. It's relevant. But if we're not careful, we'll allow ourselves to be conformed by the world we live in. The Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. The world says, don't stop moving. Don't take a break. Just be active all the time. You've got five minutes spare. Go and run around the park. You know, go and get exercise or whatever it is. And it's just go, 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 go. So when we get home, we cannot sit down and just pick up the Bible or pray or anything because we're just sitting there like, I can't sit still. You know, I've got to get my phone out and check my Facebook. And then I'm, what now? What now? Watch, watch something on Netflix. Watch this. Watch the next thing. And then crash. Go to bed. We call TV downtime. <laughs> Amen. That's being conformed by the culture of this world. Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this age. But I'm telling you, many of us are. And, and the Bible calls this age an evil age. That means we're being conformed by something that's evil. It's something that's taking us away from our calling in God. And if we're not aware of it, we're not going to be able to walk in the ways of God. If you can't read and sit and read a chapter at least of the Bible, something's wrong 
We've got to retrain ourselves to sit down and go, how can I be devoted to this word? How can I study it? And change some things so that we break out of being conformed. Jesus said it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Somehow we've got to get our attention spans longer. <laughs> Train ourselves. I've noticed that, that, that what's happening now, there's this new technique where people make videos, but they cut out all the pauses. So when somebody, because people can't sit and listen to somebody talking for 20 minutes. So they cut all the pauses out so that the person's voice just jumps, 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 and it keeps the watcher engaged in the video. That's, the world knows people can't pay attention anymore. But we've got to come out of that as God's people. Amen? Amen. And then this spills over into prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. But in the church, we struggle to pray for five minutes because we've been conformed by this evil age. We're time poor because if we're honest, our priorities are wrong. We've got 24 hours in a day. Jesus had 24 hours in a day. Paul and Peter had 24 hours in a day. Nothing's changed. They had the same time as us. Oh, but they, they lived in a different situation. They didn't live in a city. They had other things pressing in on them, but they, they made, they prioritized. Every single one of us is devoted to things. Every one of us in this room. It's just... They're not prayer, the word, and fellowship. They're other things. <laughs> you're devoted to whatever you give your time and your money to. So just log into your bank account and have a look at what you spent your money on. That's what you're devoted to. The Bible says where you put your treasure, that's where your heart is. It's easy to know what you're devoted to. <laughs> just look at your bank. Your bank manager knows exactly what you're devoted to. <laughs> and your time. Look at your phone. You can actually go into the settings and just go usage or whatever it is, and you'll just see what are the apps that you've used the most on your phone. <laughs> and you'll see very quickly what you're devoted to. <clears throat> but God's pattern is for believers to devote themselves to prayer. See, we read some scriptures and we think, man, that's impossible. Paul said to the Colossians, I think it was, pray continually. How are we going to do that? How do we pray continually? So we've got to come up with some explanation. Oh, he didn't actually mean continually. In the Greek, it meant this and this and this and this and this. <laughs> Jesus said, this is what my church is going to look like. They'll be called a house of prayer. Not a house of preaching. Not a house of singing. A house of prayer. It says, when you look at the church, that's going to be the thing that's going to define them. They're going to be a house of prayer. In fact, I've never had someone come up to me and said they'd like to pray more. Why do we only have a one-hour prayer meeting? Why don't we have a two-hour prayer meeting? I've never had that. Maybe one day I will. <laughs> Not after this meeting, because I've just told you. <laughs> Yet the early church, they devoted themselves to prayer. When they had a problem, they prayed about it. When the government were persecuting them and things were going pear-shaped, the first thing they did was have a prayer meeting. 
The first thing we do is get onto the government website. We start forming our petitions and our things that we're wanting to go off. If you don't change this, we're going to vote you out. The early church never did that. They just said, let's have a prayer meeting. We've been killed left, right, and center. Let's pray. That's the thing that's going to make the difference. They were devoted to prayer. <clears throat> and then the thing that I really want to focus on is that they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to fellowship. They shared life together. They had communion with God and communion with each other. And the level of fellowship that they have was actually so great that they shared everything they owned. See, this is why we need the Bible, because we can read, oh, well, you know, we need our fellowship with one another. And we interpreted, this is what fellowship looks like. We get together once a week for one and a half hours. We stare at the back of the head of the guy in front of you. The guy gets up and talks for 45 minutes and no one else says a word. That's fellowship. That's why God has to explain. What does it look like? It looks like this. They shared everything. They actually sold what they had and gave to people that had need. Wow. So that's where God sees fellowship, and this is what we're experiencing as fellowship. There's a big gap in the middle. <laughs> Someone in church is struggling in their marriage, so we come alongside them, we pray with them, we support them. Someone's in hospital, we go and visit them. We take a meal to them. We share what we have. That's fellowship. But it's more than just that. It's studying the Word together. It's praying together. It's ministering together. It's being on this journey, on this calling of God here in Melbourne together. We're saying together we want to reach this place. We've got a vision over this church together. We want to see that happen. That's fellowship. That's part of why we get together on a Sunday. We get together in our homes. We get together in prayer meeting. We get together at Vicar Quips. We go to the nations together. We do things together. That's why we do it. It's not just, oh, someone had a good idea. I think we should meet in homes. God told us in the Bible. That's how they had fellowship. They met in homes. They met in the temple courts. They shared everything. They ate together. They broke bread together. They prayed together. They ministered together. When Jesus sent them out, he sent them out two by two. Even then, it wasn't just, hey, you've got a calling, off you go. It's together we do everything. <clears throat> Living life together. Being in the body of Christ. See, Jesus didn't die. He didn't give his life on the cross so we can meet once a week for an hour and a half. There's no ways I can believe Jesus gave his life for that. He didn't. See, this value, we need a revelation so that it sinks deep into our spirits. We should grieve when someone doesn't want to be in a connect group. We should grieve because they're missing out on fellowship. Someone isn't at one of the meetings. We should grieve about it because it's, they're missing out. They're missing out on the family of God getting together. I come from 
South Africa. And we've got a lot of game reserves in that in South Africa. And one of the things that happens is there's large herds of animals like zebra and buck and all this kind of thing. And lions are trying to hunt these things, to eat them, right? But what they do is they, ca- they cannot attack a herd as when it's in a herd. So if you've got a herd of zebra, the lions cannot do anything while they're together in a herd. So what the lions do is that they surround the herd and then they start running at angles next to the herd. Because if they run at the herd, they're going to get hammered. But they run next to it and they try and cause confusion so that these animals start panicking and reacting and start running. And what happens is when the herd starts running in all different directions, some of them get isolated. They get left in, on, on their own. And as soon as that happens, all the lions leave the herd. They're not even interested. They all focus in on the one person, the one zebra that's left on its own. All five or six of them just attack that one. And what they do is they drive it away from the herd so that they can devour it. That's how lions hunt. And the Bible says our enemy, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Notice it says someone. Not some church, not some group. Someone, an individual. That's the strategy of the devil. He wants to run at angles and cause confusion and lie and cause panic so that people get isolated and are broken out of the fellowship of of the body of Christ. And when they're on their own, that's when he hammers them. And so when we see somebody hasn't been coming week after week after week, we should be thinking that person is in extreme spiritual danger. The devil is about to devour them. That should be our heart. That's when we have an understanding of fellowship. That's what it is. My goodness, Auntie Mary, where is she? She hasn't been. She comes once a month. Now it's once a term. Now it's once a half year. Now it's once a year. Now we don't see her anymore. Now she doesn't have faith. That's the devil devouring someone. And it starts with just one week here, one week there. Oh, no. I can't do this because of this and that and the next thing. And then it's just more and more and more and more. And suddenly they're isolated and they're a prime target for the enemy. The devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He's not Mr. Nice He never comes to do you good. <clears throat> One of the most important things about fellowship is that it's It's through fellowship that believers are encouraged by other believers. It's one of the most wonderful things. You see, God knew that life would be hard. He knew life would be hard. And so he he calls us into a family so we can do life together. Makes life a lot easier than when you're on your own. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says this. It's talking about us being correctly connected in fellowship to the body of Christ and about us being built up and encouraged. Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16. 
says, Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So Jesus puts believers in a body, and then once people are in a body, as they do their work, it helps the other parts grow. But you can't do your work outside of the body and have an impact on the body. You can only have an impact on the body when you're in the body, correctly connected to the rest of the body. As we devote ourselves to fellowship and serving God, we're actually helping the people around us grow. I think that today in the world, people are actually dying because of a lack of encouragement and loneliness. There are a lot of lonely people out there in the world. And, you know, they're taking their life, they're doing all these things, but actually the root problem is loneliness, it's isolation. Mental illness is becoming a very serious issue in Australia. Depression, anxiety, substance abuse, they're all linked to mental illness. And I read a study that was done five years ago on the Australian youth. And they said one in five youth met the criteria for serious mental disorder. One in five. That's the way the world's going. It's isolation. That's the culture of this world. And God's saying, my church, my people need to come out of that and be in fellowship with each other. <clears throat> See, the world might have a thousand friends on Facebook, but they're isolated. You need to meet someone face to face, have a coffee, have a meal, get them in your home. Because when you're suffering with depression, you don't just need a like on your post. You need face-to-face. -face. You need to be in a group who know you and you know them. <laughs> Some, someone to be a friend and to pray with you and encourage you. Every day, six Australians die from suicide. Every day, six people take their life. In Australia, just here, not in the world. 36 people try and take their life every day. Six succeed. There's a major problem in the world around us. The devil wants to isolate people, and his goal is to steal, to kill physically, and to destroy eternally. And if he can't destroy you eternally, he will try and take your life physically. And if he can't do that, he will try and steal from you the riches of Christ's inheritance for you. That's what he's trying to do. Involvement in the body of Christ is not just a suggestion from God. It's his will. Being in fellowship, it's not an optional extra. It's something we've got to devote ourselves to. Something we've got to see the value of and go, my goodness, am I devoted to fellowship? Am I in fellowship? Would anybody know if I went to hospital tomorrow, would anybody know? Oh no, we need a program. We need a hospital visitation ministry. Well, they had a program in Acts and guess what? The widows got overlooked. That's what happens with programs. 
They had a church of thousands and people were being overlooked. They even had the program in place. And people got overlooked because that's what happens with a program. But when there's genuine fellowship, there's family and people won't get overlooked. I say that being in a family myself, sometimes Jen has to remind me, hey, one of your kids needs time with you. <laughs> but that's what happens in a family. But if it was a program, that kid would be left and neglected. And it would never happen, fall through the cracks. Oh, we need a bigger program. We need more volunteers. And the church is full, full, full of programs, and it doesn't work. But this works. Genuine fellowship, genuine relationships, small groups. So we know what's going on, but we've got real friendships. So it's like somebody's struggling. Okay, let's get around. Let's help them. You know, recently, both our cars broke. Not just one, both did. And we were like, what are we going to do? We'll try and fix the one or whatever. But praise God, Joe and Shelley, they just said, hey, we'll give you one of our cars for like weeks. Well, we just said it. That's fellowship. What a blessing. They gave what they had to each other. And when you go through life like that, you can tackle any obstacle. But when you isolate yourself and you think, oh, my whole world is falling apart, everything's going wrong, that's when you suffer and you get into depression and you can't cope. But all it takes is someone coming alongside of you and being there and suddenly your spirits are lifted. Even if they don't really know what they're doing, as long as they're there, you know? It's like, oh my goodness, I'm going for a job interview. I'm so scared. I don't know what to do. I feel overwhelmed. Just having some believer, some friend coming with you will help. That's, that's the power of fellowship. Sometimes, you know, people lose family members and it's tragic. And, and, and you feel, what, what do I do? What do, what do I say to the person? We don't know what to say. Well, we don't need to even say things. Sometimes it's just being there is more than enough. Just by saying, hey, I'm with you. I'm here to pray for you. You know, what can I do? Can I clean your house? Can I make you a meal? Can I drive you, drop you off, or whatever it is? That brings huge encouragement. It helps people to get through the difficulties of life. And God knew that. But if we're not careful, we get conformed to the culture of this world, which is a culture of isolation, but it's also a culture of fear. Don't talk to strangers. My goodness, how are we going to get anyone in this church if we won't talk to strangers? <laughs> That's what the world's teaching us. How is God going to add to this church if we won't talk to strangers? <laughs> Someone from a different cultural background comes in. Oh, my word. What's going to happen now? Will you have them over for dinner? Are you happy to reach out to people of any culture? Neighbors from anywhere? Are you happy for them to join your connect group? If you're in a connect group or leading a connect group, are you happy? Or are you just like, oh, I don't know whether they're going to fit in here. It's like they've got too much money or they haven't got enough money or... Their, you know, their background's wrong. I don't know. They, you know, they just don't seem like they're going to fit. But the world that God wants to add into the church, He wants to send us, are full of broken people. They're not all exemplary church members. 
We look around and we go, my goodness, I can't give the gospel to that guy because if he gets saved, man, it's going to be chaotic in church if that guy rocks up. So that guy looked next to him. He looks like a member of New Gen. I'll give the gospel to them. The people that God wants to send us are going to have wild kids. They're going to swear. They'll come from broken homes. They'll be idol worshippers and addicted to all sorts of things. They'll be full of sickness and disease. They won't know how to parent their children or live godly lives. They're going to come from lesbian and homosexual backgrounds. And God wants them to come in and be saved and set free. God wants to add them. Are we going to accept them? They're going to be thieves. Some of you ladies might get your handbag stolen in church. You happy for that? (laughs) They might steal a bag or two a couple of weeks, but then they might get saved after that. (laughs) They'll be lazy and unreliable people. God wants to add them in. They'll be negative and self-centered and without love. How can they have love when they don't know Jesus? We love because He first loved us. How can they love? They're not going to be loving when they first come. They've got to be come to know Jesus and let Him change them. Then they will change. But in the beginning, it's going to be chaos. God wants to send these people to us. And I believe God is saying, will you be a church that will welcome them or have I got to look elsewhere? I really believe God's saying that to us. God is saying, devote yourselves to His Word. Devote yourself to prayer. Pray for the church. Pray for your small group. Pray for the lost. Pray for your own needs. Pray for your family. Pray, pray, pray. Devote yourselves to fellowship. Fully involve yourself in what this family is doing. If you're not in a connect group, get in. Jen and I, we're always talking about, hey, let's start a connect group. And then as soon as we do that, there's a whole pile of needs that suddenly crops up and we start discipling people and counseling people and ministering and going to other home groups and multiplying them off. But in our heart, we miss it. We miss being in a connect group. The best thing we have is the elders. And I'm like, you know, I see Joel once a week or whatever, but I miss home group. (laughs) He's got his own one. He gets the best of both worlds. (laughs) Remember that these people are your eternal family. Whilst we want our earthly family to be saved, we want to make sure we don't neglect our eternal family. Amen. My prayer is that God would describe New Gen City Church as a devoted people, as a people who devoted themselves. Not a people who had their arm twisted, not a people who the leader said, you've got to do this, 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 this. Just a people who devoted themselves.